0: When we think about addiction, we think of drugs, alcohol, gambling, but think about other forces that drive our behavior too. Uh, Look carefully here and see that alcohol is addictive. This is um, a nice list of what addiction actually looks like, but you can actually just take all those red words and change them a little bit and this still makes sense, right? Food can fit in this model. I often get a comment to the effect of, well, drugs and alcohol are chemicals, but think about our food today pretty chemical if you go to a gas station around the corner, right? Think about a Twinkie. We're not physiologically wired to handle the neural experience of a Twinkie. Where in nature will you find that amount of sugar without any fiber and with that incredible amount of fat and mouthfeel? You're not you're not going to hunt for a Twinkie in the wild right? We didn't evolve for that. Um, But the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, or the DSM for short, lists these criteria for addiction. And um, from this, Ashley Gearhart at the University of Michigan developed a tool that maps directly onto these criteria to measure food addiction. Food addiction actually isn't a diagnosis in the DSM right now. But she basically just took what we use to diagnose other substance dependencies and translated it for food. We also use the reward-based eating drive scale, which I will talk about in just a little bit. And as um, Alyssa mentioned, it is on our website and you'll be able to get it for free and read all about it. So I just contrasted food and alcohol, but I want to make another comparison for you. 23% of people who use heroin go on to develop full-blown opiate addictions. That actually means that most people who try or use heroin aren't actually becoming addicted to opioids, okay? When people who are addicted to opioids seek treatment for their addictions, they go to their doctor's offices, doctors don't just say, aha, I have your solution. Stop that, yeah. just don't do that, right? That's, that's not how it works. They're more likely to refer them to addiction treatment, help them find a clinic, hook them up with other services, right? It's, it's not just, oh, well, But if we flip over to food, about 20% of people meet criteria for food addiction. Again, we just flipped the words in the criteria slide I already showed to get there. Um, And since we all eat, food isn't avoidable. This means that most people who eat food aren't actually addicted to food. Right? Uh, food addiction is more common among people who have overweight or obesity, uh, who are women and who are 35 and older, but we know that it can affect anyone. And when people seek treatment for food addiction, which often presents as an umbrella of weight loss treatment, doctors often do just say, I have your solution. Stop eating that and go to this exercise class. Poof, you're fixed. Right? but. Kind of like Bob Newhart did on Mad TV. I don't know if anybody's familiar with this skit, but it was a great skit where a patient would come in. He'd say, "You, you pay up front for your services." He'd take their payment. He'd tell them their problem. They'd tell him their problem. He would say, "I have your solution. Just stop that. Check out with my secretary on the way out." It was pretty funny. But when it comes to treatment for obesity, people often know. Oh, you know, I really should eat the salad and not the pizza. People know that. I should go to the exercise class, not sit on the couch for two hours. Pe- people know that. They don't need someone to tell them that. Um, and we debate about you know, nutrition all the time, and we could get into those nuances, but big picture, people don't really need a handout for this. In cases like this, doctors may refer them to exercise programs or a nutritionist, but that's not hitting on the problem that they're actually suffering from, um, feeling addicted to particular food additives or particular food combinations or particular foods. So I invoked this opioid model on the previous slide because it turns out that the opioid system has a lot to do with our eating behavior. I'm gonna briefly unpack the opioid system here in a very, very broad sense. There's exogenous opioids, or those that we actually introduce into our bodies. That's like heroin, opiate medications. Then there's endogenous opioids, and those are naturally occurring in our bodies, and we release them when we do pleasurable things like eating. Uh, when we eat a tasty food, we experience a release of these endogenous opioids, which act on specific receptor sites in our brains and remind us that, hey, this tastes good. This is pleasurable. I should eat this again. right? We learn which things taste good and which things don't. Um, we can alter our eating behavior and our preferences by actually changing the action at these receptor sites. And as an example from the overdose literature, with which many of you are probably aware of because it's been in the news a lot lately, we can give an overdose person opioid antagonists, or Narcan, to save their life by acutely reversing their high, right? This action is happening at those receptor sites. Um, other studies have taken this to the realm of food, the things that we're working on. And when we administer opioid antagonists to animals and to humans, they find their food less tasty and they start to eat less of it. This is a really big hammer, right? We're giving this drug to them in their brains, so everything's gonna be less fun, but it just so happens that the only thing that's in the rat cage is food. That's their only option for fun, right? Um, But this has a lot of implications for obesity treatment. Many folks have begun looking at opioid antagonists and thinking, "Hmm, well maybe we can use use this as a weight loss medication. And you may be familiar with Contrave, that's bupropion with naltrexone. So that's a combination drug that tries to antagonize opioid receptors to reduce eating. But These medications cause withdrawal effects, right? Because that's the point of the opioid antagonists. Who would want to take a drug every day that makes you feel a little nauseated? Going to stick with that? No, not so much. So rather than use opioid antagonists as a treatment method, what we're looking at is how to use them to identify people in need of a different kind of treatment than traditional diet and exercise programs for losing weight. I just want to leave you with this idea. Our our endogenous opioid systems determine a lot of our behavior. We do things because they feel good, and we don't do other things because they don't feel good. And our opioid systems are what are mediating our experiences. Everyone in this room has an endogenous opioid system. We shouldn't discount this powerful system and think of our behavior as solely a product of our willpower, because it's not. There are behavioral that is non-drug interventions for addictive-like behaviors, and they work. Um, We at the Osher Center tend to study a good deal of mindfulness training methods, uh, like mindful eating, mindfulness-based stress reduction, but randomized controlled trials, or RCTs, have also shown that motivational interviewing, um, different types of cognitive and behavioral therapies, they can also reduce addiction symptoms. But that all said, The field of food addiction is fast growing, Um, we're fortunate to be here today with some people to learn from the front lines, Um, and there's way more to it than what I presented. But I just wanted to communicate to you that this is a very powerful system in the brain, and we should be paying attention.